Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman. A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Online Great Books. If you've made a goal for yourself to read the great books of the Western world, but have had trouble following through, check out Online Great Books. It's an online platform. You sign up. They're going to mail you a physical copy of the book that you're assigned that month. They're going to provide you a reading schedule and send you reminders on how you should read so you can keep pace. Then at the end of the month, you're going to have an online video seminar where you can discuss the book with other people in your group. So if you want to learn more about this, go to onlinegreatbooks.com. And when you're ready to sign up, use code AOM at checkout. You can save 25 percent on your first three months. Again, onlinegreatbooks.com, code AOM at checkout to save 25% on your first three months. All right, here's a question for you guys. What does it mean to be gifted? Right, you probably, if you're like most people in America or in the West, you probably took some test when you're in elementary school that was used to determine whether you were a gifted student. Um, but what exactly was that test measuring? And second, I mean, is that test really useful in determining, you know, future performance of a child well into adulthood? Um, well, our guest today has been studying this for his most of his career. His name is Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. He's a cognitive psychologist. And his most recent book is called Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. And he takes a look at um, sort of America's, in particular, obsession with determining whether a child is gifted or whether an adult is gifted and our obsession with IQ exams. And, you know, he looks at what exactly are we measuring when we're taking IQ exams and he also challenges the idea that you know we shouldn't just use IQ exams to determine uh, the future prospects of a child, especially. It's a fascinating book. It's particularly interesting if you're a dad, um, because you might have kids who are in that, who are taking those tests that you took when you were a kid, and um, whether they get into the gifted program or they stick with the average kids, that can have an, a profound effect on the rest of their life. Um, so we discuss all this in the podcast. It's a really interesting, um, interesting one. So stay tuned. Well, Scott Barry Kaufman, welcome back to the Art of Manliness podcast. Thanks. I, I love chatting with you. I actually think you're you're the first like repeat uh, yeah, guest cool. we've had on two very different topics. On two very different topics. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For those of you, yeah, Scott, we had Scott on the show like last year, early last year, with uh, Glenn Gear. Yeah, that's right. Uh, wrote Mating Intelligence, the co-authored book called Mating Intelligence about 
how to what research says about what people find attractive in one another. Fascinating book, fascinating podcast. I recommend you check it out. But today we're going to not talk about love and sex. We're going to be talking about intelligence, just like not just mating intelligence, but like intelligence, like IQ stuff. Um, so Scott, you're, that's, that's the question though. That's the it? question though. Yeah. What, what, what is intelligence? What is intelligence? So yeah, Scott, your book is ungifted and the subtitle is redefining intelligence. Wait, the book itself is ungifted. <laughs> yeah. It was a horrible book. You should that's, be, the, that's the title. Yeah. Title of the book. Title of the book. Ungifted. Subtitle. I mean, maybe the book is ungifted. I guess that's, that is for you to judge. No, no, it was, it was a great yeah. book. Cool. Um, so it's just, you take on this idea of intelligence, like what it is, how we measure it. Uh, it's just, it's very comprehensive. Um, but I want to start off talking about, uh, your personal history because you enter, you know, you, you put that in, you inject that into the, the book throughout, right. And basically your personal history seems like it's a lot of it's with the impetus and what inspired the book and sort of your, uh, research and intelligence. Um, but it start off like you're, you're, you have just an extremely impressive resume, uh, graduated from Carnegie Mellon fellowship at the university of Cambridge, PhD from Yale. You've, um, taught at NYU. You've written, you know, you started a book, uh, a, a successful website called the creativity post published several books. And what's crazy too, guys, listen to this. He's only 34 years old. Uh, so he's done all this in a short amount of time. Uh, well, just not a short amount of time, but just like in, very early in his life. Um, but what's funny is you talk about in your book is if someone looked at you when you were a, a, in, in elementary school or middle school or high school, they would probably wouldn't think, no, Scott's not going to do any of that stuff. He'll at best, you know, be working some sort of mindless corporate job at worst, maybe working in retail. Um, can you talk a bit about your childhood and ad adolescence in term terms of schooling? Sure. I think that's exactly right. And I, I would even go so far to say that even if you still measure me by traditional metrics, you would not be able to predict <laughs> what I'm actually doing. So um, it's that's the paradox I've tried, been kind of like spending my whole life trying to solve. My early childhood, um, I had a lot of ear infections the first couple of years of my life, and I developed a learning disability called central auditory processing disorder, um, which made it very hard for me to process process auditory input in real time. I mean, I would just kind of like zone out and then daydream in the classroom and um, because it was hard for me to keep up to the auditory lectures. And of course, you know, from the outside that uh, it looks like I was um, dumb, right? I mean, it looks like I was not understanding anything. It was just very hard for me to, um, to, to process it in real time. And um, I eventually outgrew or, or, or maybe, you know, maybe you never really outgrew these things, but you, and I don't even – how do you tell anymore? You know, But I compensated so much for these things that by fifth, sixth grade, um, I think that I was, I was yearning for more intellectual challenges. But I was still in special education and they wouldn't let me take more course challenging courses that I wanted to take. And um, really a lot of my early childhood, I had to kind of fight – to display to people what I was capable of, um, and uh, and that was a, a lot of my early early childhood. So, how did you make that leap from, you know, being put in special ed and being seen as sort of on the slow track to doing all this impressive stuff? Was there a moment that like sort of things sort of shifted for you, where someone saw, like an adult saw, hey, this person, this guy, is, this kid's got potential? Um, how did how did things shift for you? 
Yeah, I don't know if it, if they saw potential, but they saw my frustration. There was one. There was a teacher in ninth grade. I was I was kept in special education all the way up to ninth grade, and I had to keep in mind, you know, I had a lot of catching up to do once I eventually um, uh, left special education. But I was sitting there in ninth grade, and a teacher who had not been there um, prior to that day, she, I guess she was covering for the regular teacher. She saw that I was like so clearly fr- frustrated. I was like looking out at the classroom across the hall, the biology class, they wouldn't let me take. And I was supposed to be taking an untimed history test. And I clearly wasn't, wasn't paying too much attention to it. You know, she's like, what's going on? I was like, well, I have the rest of my life to take this test since it's untimed. So what does it matter? And she really, she took me aside and she, she, after class outside the class, she said, look, why are you still here? Um, Have you thought about, you know, get taking your try trying it you know without out gifted without um, not gifted without special education <laughs> and i was and i was like whoa like no one's ever like questioned no i i mean it's something i intuitively wanted but you know we spend a lot of time in our youth um accepting authority right accepting you know kind of like the judgment of others and and this was really a pivotal moment in my life she really um caused me to question um whether or not i was capable of more that I, I too, we felt as though I was capable more, but it kind of gave empowered me to to take a stand, and I I didn't report to special education, um, I didn't report back, and uh, they let me out on a trial trial basis. Yeah, I put that in quotes, um, but I went from like a C D student to straight A student, and um, you know it's it's amazing the power of having something to prove. Yeah, <laughs> that can be a great motivating force in itself, and I was just like so determined to prove that I. Um, was uh, could do something that that someone would describe as intelligent. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I did tried all sorts of identities. I did all sorts of stuff. My grandfather was a famous cellist, um, and he was retired. And he, I was like, "Will you teach me how to play cello, Gramps?" And he taught me. And I joined the school orchestra. I did uh, choir. I did um, I did plays. Um, I did, became a Latin scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I tried lots of identities. I'm not going to say I was good at all these identities yeah. I tried, but. The exciting thing is that I was just given that freedom to, um, to to try different identities, which I didn't have that freedom prior to that moment. Interesting. And what's funny as I was reading that, like I related to that quite. A bit. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who read this and they're like I relate to that. Um, you know, while I wasn't like placed in like special ed, I was just sort of like on the average track, track right? Because of the standardized test you take, you know, the Iowa test of basic skills or whatever. And I remember being really frustrated because I had friends who got to go to like enrichment hour, right? And they had to like they got to do cool stuff, like learn about Greek architecture. And I was like stuck, like color, you know, color by number stuff. And I remember like just being so like frustrated about it. I'd go home and like, you know, research this stuff on my own. Cause I wanted to like, I wanted that experience, but because, you know, this test says I wasn't ready for it. I was denied that. And like, it wasn't until like middle school that I had just an English teacher who said, you know, I think you should be like on the honors track. And if like, it weren't for her, like I would like it because of that lady, like I was like seen as the honor student now. Like I was every class I got, I was honors and like things just really went up for me after that. But it was just like, I just remember being just completely frustrated that I couldn't do this stuff because a test said I couldn't. That's right. We spend so much more time limiting children than offering them opportunities. That's a, that's, that's a, it came so clear to me in my childhood and, I don't think we're that that far um, changed today. Yeah. Okay. So, based on your personal experience, as well as your 
you know, your own research as well as, you know, just years of research on the topic. Um, you make the argument in your book, Ungifted, that how we define intelligence uh, isn't very useful and that we need to redefine it. So what's wrong with how we typically look at intelligence? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think a lot, you know, even since this book has come out, my ideas have um, have not changed, but have um, um, uh, morphed and nuanced more ways, nuanced ways. The thing that I think that I wanted, emphasize, wanted to emphasize and ungifted is I'm not trying to distort the idea of intelligence out of, you know, and completely redefine it in my own way so that, like, I come out on top. You yeah. know, it's, like, it's not like a personal vendetta to, like, I define intelligence by the ability to do whatever Scott Barry Kaufman's good at. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. What I'm trying to really do is change the way we assess it or judge it. Um, first of all, I would like to stop judging people's intelligence at any one moment in time. But if we absolutely must, what I argue in the book is that there's two conditions I think have to be met at a minimum. So I don't think just administering an IQ test um, in a two-hour, you know, give you a two-hour snapshot into a person's um, ability to um, on the spot come up with um, uh, problem solve in a very decontextualized, impersonal way that's not um, at all interesting to the test taker. I think at the very least, if you really want to judge what someone's capable of intellectually, you have to, one, um, activate them or make sure that they're activated, make sure that they're engaged um, in what they're doing. This is something that interests them. You have their attention. You have their full attention, their full brain power. And second of all, you need to give them a heck of a lot more than two hours to display it. You know, you need an extended period of um, acquiring expertise, acquiring mastery, um, and um, and really cultivating a deep learning process. And I think that um, it's a very superficial, narrow way of judging someone's intelligence in a two-hour um, decontextualized testing session. So that that's the major point I wanted to make. But I actually um, I don't I don't think we need to distort the idea. I think intelligence intuitively means something to people. And I, I think it's a, it's an uphill battle trying to just completely um, say, no, intelligence means something completely different than you ever thought it meant. Um, I don't know, think that's the best strategy moving forward. Um, I, I think we can think of, you know, intelligence as the, as sort of the capacity or um, the ability to learn, the ability to learn, to, um, uh, to have knowledge, to acquire the ability to acquire knowledge. Um, you know, these are things we intuitively think of as intelligence, but I think that, that so many more people are capable of um, displaying those capacities, those abilities um, in much more extraordinary ways than we give them credit. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And that kind of leads me to my next question because it's about the history of IQ testing in the West. Because yeah. you, you devote a lot of the book to that. And part of the problem, I, what I gather the problem with how we look at intelligence is the way we test for it. Um, That's my major beef, yeah. Yeah, it's with IQ tests and like uh, it's just a really fascinating history how IQ tests, how they got their start and how they become sort of almost this. It's almost like they, we treat like astrology. Like you take this test and it's like this is going to define you and predict how you're going to do in life for the rest of your life. Um, but, you know, are IQ tests really that useful? And like what exactly are IQ tests measuring? Because uh, that, that was I found that very interesting. Like, you know. What are what are we what are we measuring when we when we take an IQ test? It's a great question, and I and I've been, you know, part of my scientific research in the past ten years has been really trying to 
understand what exactly is IQ measuring I, these or are these tests measuring. I really want to pin pinpoint narrow down exactly and kind of put limits around it. And what I basically come to the conclusion is that they are measuring um, a set of intellectual functions that are things that we would reasonably want to consider in the intellectual domain of things like memory, right? I mean, if as you grow older, you know, you you, you have to admit that your memory <laughs> declines, right? Mm-hmm. You can't like you can't be in denial about reality. Like this is something that is important for our lives. You know, short-term memory, working memory, your ability to simultaneously hold um, various things in your head and process and try to integrate them to come up with a, make an inference, right? That's the hallmark of reasoning. Human reasoning on the spot requires um, a a working memory capacity to um, be able to synthesize things. Um, Your ability to um, uh, vocabulary, you know, what is your vocabulary? What is your um, reading comprehension? Can you read things quickly and then um, understand the gist of what you're reading and understand. So all these, these cognitive functions, um, I think we can admit belong in the, the domain of intellectual functioning. But I think that the problem is when we use these tests to um, judge what someone's capable of achieving intellectually or what they're, um, when we use it as a measure of potential. Mm-hmm. That's where I see mm-hmm. the problem coming. So um, Alan Kaufman, I'm not related to, but we have the same last name. And in 1979, the same year I was born, again, probably probably pure coincidence, um, wrote this seminal book that I feel has been grossly underappreciated called Intelligent Testing. Not intelligence testing, intelligent testing. Um, it, he was a uh, student of um, David Weschler who created the, uh, you know, the Weschler tests of, um, of intelligence. Um, and he, he argued that we need to use these tests in and in we can use these as a tool. Um, to understand a student's patterns of cognitive strengths and weaknesses, you know, oh, the student clearly is a much better reasoner when it comes to spatial information than verbal information, or much better, you know, at uh, verbal analogies than um, uh, than so than other the other things that were than short-term memory, uh, things like that nature. But he argues that they should be used for that purpose, not the purpose of measuring some sort of innate intelligence. But using the testing to inform some sort of specific goal, like, oh, maybe this person is, um, is not performing well in school. Use it as like a problem-solving process. You know? You know, if a student comes in you know, and you're a school psychologist and the student is um, doing poorly in school, there's a whole bunch of reasons that that could be the case. Um, and one of the reasons may, may be that the ch- child is under-challenged and is um, not being given a chance to accelerate at the – at the pace that they require, or, or um, um, as well as a whole whole host of other reasons, and I think that an IQ test battery can be used among a lot of other indicators, uh, like um, school back, you know, uh, family background, the environment the child grows up in, the teacher support, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I argue for a holistic assessment of intelligence. That's really what I'm arguing for: is um, a holistic assessment that takes into account so many factors in the in the problem solving process does that make sense that makes sense and I, I guess i imagine why we haven't like as in the west or in america haven't done that is it's pretty complicated to do a holistic view of a person i mean it's pretty easy to use a test to say okay this okay. is this person's potential so we'll we'll use this as some sort of filtering because that's what we use the iq test or different types of iq testing is the filtering device yeah, um that's right like for I mean, sort of sorting device a sorting device yeah like I guess an example from my personal life, like I guess the LSAT, right, for to enter into law school. 
is sort of an IQ test. It's testing for reasoning, a, t- a specific well, type of reasoning. Correlated with IQ, the global IQ score like point eight zero, yeah. very high. Yeah, um, but like we, uh, oh, I lost you. Hello. 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 Hey. I, hey, I. We got disconnected. We just accidentally got disconnected. Yeah. yeah. That's okay. Um, we're still recording, so it's fine. Great. Um, yeah, but I, I remember like that's used as a, a sorting device. And like, if you don't score, like universities, law schools use that. If you score within a certain range, like you're not going to get into that law school. Um, that's right. But what's interesting though, is that I've known students who like did very poorly on the LSAT, not very poorly, but like just bad enough or good enough they can get in, but they went on to have very successful careers in the law because maybe they weren't great at taking the LSAT, but they were good at other aspects or, you know, other aspects of the law. That's, I guess, more important. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. It does. Um, here's a question too. Like, just, I don't, I don't know if this is even related, but you know, there's been, I just read this, that you know, there's studies that show that IQ tests in America have been going up. Like there's like some kind of effect, right? There's, isn't there a name for that? Like why? I forgot. Like there's uh- like, yeah, it's called the Flynn effect. The Flynn effect. Yeah, what is the Flynn effect? Yeah, so I it turns out that like if our great 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 grandparents were alive today and took an IQ test, their IQ uh, would, would they, if their exact score would have a di- very different meaning um, today than it would have when they first took that test. It would be much much lower. Their IQ score, and you have to understand the way IQ is, and, and to understand the, to understand what I really mean by that, you have to understand how IQ is calculated. IQ is not like weight or height. There's no, you know, it, it it's an arbitrary number. It's a number that's purely relative to other people in the population. So gotcha. if you're alone on a desert island, your IQ, you have the highest IQ in the world, as well as the lowest IQ in the that world. That makes sense. Okay, your IQ is meaningless. Um, so. What you do is you go out there and you you measure your um, IQ. You you measure um, you, you administer a test to like thousands thousands of people, and then your particular IQ score is how well you did um, in comparison to all these other people. And it turns it see it looks like over the course of the 20th century, people have been getting been performing better on these tests. The standard has risen on this test. So that, a, that, that, that what would earn you an IQ of, let's say, 120 in 1900 would now you know, be like in the, the mentally disabled range. Mm. And that's the paradox that, that is, is – does that mean that our great-great-great-great-grandparents were mentally, all mentally disabled? Mm-hmm. Well, no. So, so then the, the natural question is, well, then, then, then are these tests even meaningful, right? So there's, it, it, it raises a whole host of questions. Hmm. It does seem like IQ has been rising. Interesting. Um, all right. Here's the question like for me and I think other people will be interested because like as I, was, as I was reading this section, I was having a hard time getting my mind around it. But like you talk about general intelligence. Yes. Yes. That's the, the very thorny. Yeah. You know, in a very like um, easy to understand way, you can – you know, IQ, which is just an average score among, amongst a whole wide range of different uh, cognitive functions – um, is 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 almost perfectly correlated with general the general intelligence factor. Uh, so you could just think of general intelligence as IQ. Gotcha. Um, general intelligence itself is a, it's a statistical um, 
methods, you know, that is, is actually quite sophisticated, requiring something called factor analysis, where you look at um, the correlate, how do all these tests relate to one another? Mm -hmm. And you see that people who are good at one test tend, tend to be good at the other kinds of tests. And people who are do poorly on one test tend to do poorly on other types of tests. And you can um, kind of figure out statistically what um, what's what what's in common, how much you know is in common across all these different tests, and then rank people on how well they are in what's co in common across all the tests. But that's a very sophisticated way of just saying it's a it's 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 a rough you know estimate of a, of of the average efficiency among a whole bunch of different of these cognitive tests. Very similar to the physical fitness test you take in high school or middle school. Right, you can mm -hmm. come up with a, a a general fitness factor, general fitness factor, which is just basically your your basic um, average um, efficiency uh, across all sorts of things, like putting your chin up on the the, the yeah. you know, you're running the 500 meter down. You take all that, you put them through the hoops in 10 different ways, and then you just rank people in one dimension, um, which is their average efficiency across all of it, and that's all the general intelligence factor is. Gotcha. But but it is complicated. I mean, it is. It's hard to describe yeah. that general audience because <laughs> it is. It does involve quite sophisticated statistics, and there's so many debates. Yeah, that was the thing. Like when I was reading it, it was like, yeah, a lot of statistics, which I never took in college. Um, yeah. So, um, but okay, that 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 helped kind of clear things up for me. Um, here's another question I have. I mean, I mean, maybe it, this goes to whether IQ tests are useful or not. Take my example with the LSAT. I'm, that's I'm familiar with that because that had a big effect on my life. Um, when I, I remember when I first took my first practice exam, like I scored like a 142, which like would not get you into law school. Okay. This, this is when I have never, this is like the first time I ever took the LSAT. But then like after like three months of intensive practice and, and study, like I was able to get that score up to like 165, which could get you okay. into some really uh, fantastic, you know, some really uh, high ranking law schools. And I ended up scoring like a 160 when I actually took the exam. Um and so like I got better at it. Like I, I improved my I guess IQ in that that reasoning, that area. But like I know if I if I were to take the 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 LSAT today, I don't think I would do that well. Cause like I've been out of like I haven't really I'm out of practice. Like so I mean, can you like I mean is IQ testing, can you sort of like practice those skills and then like do well for that IQ test, but later on in life you, you know what I'm talking you, 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 do you get where I'm going with this? I mean that's a very it's a very contentious field, is how much can you train IQ versus the specific um, abilities that are measured by IQ tests? Yeah. So, and that's a very contentious, hot field right now. Um, there's, um, you, you know, I told you like on IQ tests, there's like s seven or eight different general, like specific abilities that are mm -hmm. measured from like reading comprehension to spatial visualization ability to a bunch of cognitive abilities. And IQ is just the average of all of that, yeah. right? Well, it looks like it's a lot harder to and IQ the the IQ itself does um, fluctuate across your lifespan, so it can change. Um, it can change, but but it really is fairly stable, relatively stable across our lifespan. And what what is what what we can it seems to be much more amenable to change are those specific abilities that um, that you that that involve practice. So yeah. you know, luminosity has you know or uh, Cogmed, right? They they train specific functions like working memory, mm -hmm. and you it, it's there's evidence seems to be much more clear that working memory can be improved than that general global efficiency. 
Now, with the LSAT, that's a very interesting point because there is a recent study that came out where they um, looked at the effect of LSAT training on the brain um, over the course of a couple months. And they found, first of all, they found that people on average cha- jump from like the 40th percentile to the 70th percentile. Mm-hmm. So, so clearly that training um, helped a lot. But also their uh, brain connectivity between um, the what's called the, the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe, which, which we know is really important for attention and focus and executive functioning. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. 
That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Um, that connectivity was much stronger after that practice. So this practice has measurable effects on the connectivity of key regions of our brain. And I think that it's just like going to the gym. Like if you don't practice it, um, those, the, you know, you're, it's, you're going to atrophy. Those skills are going to atrophy. Um, if you go back and tried it right now, you probably, you're right. You probably wouldn't do as well. But if we gave you um, another four-month booster session or something, mm-hmm. Um, you could probably um, get back up there. So these things are um, are both relatively stable, but are also amenable to um, change. That's that's my nuanced answer. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. If you made a goal for yourself to read the great books of the Western world, but have had trouble following through with it, check out Online Great Books. It's an online platform. You sign up. They're going to mail you a physical copy of the book you're going to read. So if you're reading Republic that month, they're going to send you a physical copy of Plato's Republic. You're going to read it. They're going to give you a reading schedule, send you reminders so you keep pace with your reading. You'll be assigned to a class where you can discuss the book in the form. And at the end of the month, you'll have a video seminar where you can talk about this in real time. It's a great way you have accountability. Plus, you have someone to talk to about this stuff and sort through this and think through it. So if you'd like to check this out, go over to OnlineGreatBooks.com. And when you're ready to sign up, use code AOM at checkout to save 25% off your first three months. Again, OnlineGreatBooks.com, code AOM at checkout to save 25% off your first three months. And now back to the show. Uh, That's a good one. And yeah, you bring up brain training because that's kind of controversial too. It's like, it's, you know, okay, yeah, you can improve working memory, but like, you know, like basically the arguments, it seems like, yeah, you can do these games and you'll get better at that game. But does it like correlate to like improvement? Does that transfer? Uh, yeah. Does that tra- and, and, and the question is, so if you view IQ as smarts, which, you know, I, I don't equate it with smarts. Um, but if you do, which a lot of intelligence researchers do, then they'll say, you're just improving your working memory. You're not improving your smarts. Yeah. Now, I think it's, that's a slippery slope. I think that it, it, you know, say that to a lot of people who um, suffer from their inability to focus, like people with ADHD. And, and if you show them uh, go through training and, and you show them benefits in their ability to concentrate in their daily life, that's a very meaningful improvement in itself. Mm-hmm. You know, and what does that mean? Their intelligence wasn't improved just because their IQ scored didn't budge. You know, in, 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 certain, in certain ways, I, I would count that as a, an improvement of intelligence. Yeah. But that, man, that's, yeah. it becomes like, definitional. It becomes yeah. Definitional. That's really, that's really interesting. Um, so, okay, you know, one problem you talk about in the book um, with IQ tests is that they can off. I mean, what they end up doing is they label people as either gifted or ungifted. That's what we do with an elementary school. That's right. And and when these labels are applied in youth, they can you know basically they follow you for the rest of your life. That's right. Uh, and and I think we all you know intuitively understand. Okay, if you're labeled ungifted, how that's going to hurt you. But you also make an argument in your book that being labeled gifted can hurt as well. Um, how so? 
Yeah, I don't know if anyone's actually labeled. I don't know if uh, Ungifted is an official label. Yeah, it's just, like, what would you but, call it? But, normal? But the, closest, the, the closest, what do you say? Just like normal, average, what would you... No, there is there is a term that is official that is used called slow learner, oh. which I find extremely derogatory. Um, and um, and the slow learners are considered beyond hope. Mm. So they, they're not low enough in IQ to warrant a diagnosis of mental disability, but they're not high enough where uh, we say that they are capable of re- remediation. Mm. <laughs> so they fall between the cracks. That's the like, you know, the 80 to 90 or the 70 to 80 IQ range is they're slow learners. Yeah. So maybe that's the closest thing I would say to ungifted. Um, but being labeled gifted does impact – it, it, I, I think it sets up an unrealistic expectation of what it takes to succeed in life and what it takes to um, – particularly when you get to a point where you're going to face challenges. It sets up this um, expectation that you were somehow born with this special sauce that's going to get you through the hard times in life. It's going to get you to your goals. That's going to be able – allow you to achieve no matter what. And I think it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous and and not true. You know, there are clearly people, kids that are um, developmentally ahead of others, just as though just as there are kids who are developmentally um, slower than others at any moment in time. And the the resources they they require um, it does involve giving them more accelerated. You know, because I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of acceleration. But beyond that, I think it's dangerous to set up for them expectations that um, that that they hold around their head this sort of fixed notion of ability as you're either gifted or you're not gifted because the reality is far more complicated than that. Hmm. So I guess they uh, one, dis, I guess uh, a not a what the word am I? What am I trying to go for? Like a disadvantage of being called gifted. I mean, you you sort of lose that on those opportunities of like learning grit and. Uh, so you, you sort of like, it's sort of like learned helplessness, right? It's like, okay, if, yeah. if I can't get it right off the bat, then it's no, I, I can't even, I shouldn't even try. Cause apparently I wasn't born to do that. I mean, is that, that's right. I mean, kids, I mean, that's a very common finding. Most kids in, in special education is they, they, um, they acquire learned helplessness mm-hmm. and that's, that's, a, that's a, that's a shame. Um, in the, in the, there's a lot of debate, a lot of debate, uh, amongst the gifted community about what the purpose of gifted education should be. And, and I think that, um, that's far from settled, you know, is giftedness who you are or is giftedness what you do? And the field is divided on that issue. And if you believe giftedness is who you are, um, then, uh, then, then nothing you do is really going to, uh, matter really. Um, if you you know if, if giftedness is who you are and say I'm gifted and then you fail at something, well that can have a dramatic impact on a person's self esteem and um, and uh, motivation to to keep going because they'll say oh I guess I wasn't gifted to begin with mm-hmm. you know yeah. so that can work in different ways as well. So do you think we should just drop the labels completely? I'm okay for dropping it. Yeah. I just wrote a uh, uh, op ed that we just submitted in the New York Times. We'll see what happens with. Um, some other researchers who wrote a very thoughtful book on um, on rethinking gifted education, and you know, we argue that the gifted gifted education shouldn't be about identifying the gifted kid and and giving them resources. It should be about advanced academics. 
Yeah. It should be about it should be more about the gifted curriculum and not the gifted person. Mm. So um, we think it does a it gets in the way of the, the the everyday practical needs of the child in the classroom. The giftedness concept and label, I feel, gets in the way of the real issues, which is the individual needs of each child in that classroom. And you are going to have some students in any classroom that at any moment in time require more advanced academics. Mm-hmm. But um, sticking the giftness label, I think, um, gets in the way of, um, of of how to actually help them with what with with this what they need most, which is normally just advanced academics within a particular domain, not in general, not in every single um, in every single way possible, but usually in very specific ways. You know, the kid who who's who's a math whiz um, and needs more math curriculum. You know, like let's give him advanced academics and math, but. Um, I'm very, I'm very more uh, an advocate of um, very, pr- very practical approach, a very needs-based approach, but not getting tripped up in um, these fixed labels. Interesting. I'm curious if things like uh, Khan Academy and online education will make that practical. Because I'm, I'm sure, like right now, people are like, it's easier just to like segment these kids off into their own separate class. Um, but I guess with I online education, so- you, yeah. You don't have to do that so much. That's right. And you also let kids go at their own pace. Yeah. And, you know, the giftedness concept is all about is all about how fast do you get there. You know, if you're getting there faster than others, you're gifted. If you're getting there slower than others, you're ungifted. But, you know, I think that really is not um, thinking about it the right way. It's not really conducive to, to uh, getting the best out of these kids. Um, if there's an emphasis instead, if we had more of a, a, an emphasis or a school culture – on the process mm-hmm. and, um, and and not so much on how fast you get there, but the quality of what you're producing. If there's more of an emphasis on that, I think you'd be getting a lot more performance, better performance out of all the students. Very interesting. Okay. So a- another big theme in, in your book is this idea of greatness, like you know, achieving greatness. Um, and that's, I guess the first question would be like, how do you define greatness? Like, what is it? Like, how do you define it? Cause that's a, I mean, I'm sure like it's going to be different for every person, right? Yeah, now that we've sorted out uh, intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Let's go to this other <laughs> complex, de, you know, contentious topic. Um, you know, greatness is, is such a loaded word. I, I, you know, other other people have used other words that. Um, I, I basically what I'm talking about there is talking about world class expertise. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about you know high achievement at a level in which you um, clearly. Uh, have acquired so much knowledge in that field and and maybe you even t- like you kind of sit on top of it you're kind of like um you kind of change it or see it in 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 in, in new ways or, or steer steer it in new directions you're like you're influencing it to me I, I think that's what what greatness really is is your ability to um kind of pu- pull pull a whole field or pull a whole um kind of, you know, uh, where people are like following, you know, in new directions. Um, but it does require a certain amount of expertise to do that. So there's a certain process to that. I know that you've, uh, you've, you've, uh, excerpted, I think one of Robert Greene's books, uh, mastery. Mastery. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think that he, um, what he calls mastery might be what I'm calling greatness. Okay. You know, but it is there's no uh, objective definition of of what greatness is. Uh, what do you think greatness is? Everyone, everyone I think thinks of greatness in a different way probably. Yeah. I mean, well after you read after I read your book I was like, "Oh, that's a great I like that idea of greatness." Um 
But uh, yeah, I mean, to me, greatness is like being excellent in some aspect of your life. That's to me what greatness is. Um, Whether that's sports or music or relationships. I'm not talking just about picking up chicks, but like just like being, having that social intelligence, being adept at that. Uh, To me, I guess that would be greatness. Yeah, I I would be totally on board with that. I don't want to get. I, I don't want to get too tripped up on on the on the terms, mm-hmm. um, but there's clearly there clearly is a characteristic. You know, you kind of like know greatness when you see it. Yeah. You know, there, the, or the, or you know when you've achieved it. Like you know that you've you've kind of gotten to a level that's top of the curve, like top one percent compared to other people in that field or in that whatever you're interested in. So, yeah. I mean, to achieve, you know, greatness or excellence or whatever you want to call it, um, I mean, besides expertise, right? I mean, That's I'd, right. I'd, I'd imagine there's other attributes you need. And it's not just intelligence either. You can be very, I mean, I know extremely smart people who just have wasted oh. their smart, you know, their smarts uh, because they lack certain, you know, certain attributes that would allow them to take advantage of that. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I like to think of greatness as a multiplicative multiplicative function of a wide range of characteristics, not an additive function. So if, if greatness was just the sum of grit and, and IQ and um, curiosity and, you know, then that wouldn't allow for, um, for your ability to compensate in various ways mm-hmm. to reach the same goal because you would just add, add these things, add these values up and your total value um, would be the summation of them. But, Instead, I see them more as a multiplicative function. So, a very high, um, a very high level of certain characteristic um, can give you a higher total product value than um, than than another one because these things multiply um, among each other. And uh, in the book, I, I outline a lot of different characteristics that you can bring to the table um, that we should be considering as potential contributors to greatness. Um, things like uh, growth mindset, self-regulation, deliberate practice, which is sure, certainly something um, that is extremely important. That's sort of the quality or the way that you learn. Um, active learning strategies, um, not becoming, not being a passive learner, but 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 actively um, seeking out mentors, actively seeking out knowledge, and um, and sort of uh, making that a very active learning process. Um, talk about, um, I think, openness to experience is very important. Um, intellectual curiosity. I've distinguished intellectual curiosity in my own research from IQ. Mm-hmm. They're separate dimensions. So you can be a very fast information processor and um, not have much curiosity. And the other way around, and I think these things the – th- the point I want to make is that you could mix and match all these characteristics in unique ways to kind of give you your own brand of intelligence, your own unique – um, your unique aspect of intelligence that you bring to the table that you wouldn't appreciate if we just solely stuck to the standardized model. You know, if we just took one one of these characteristics like IQ and said, you know, the extent to which you deviate from this number is the extent to which you deviate from intelligence or the extent to which you, you the extent to which you deviate from your ability to be great. You know, I don't think that's the right way of thinking about it. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong. So what, what I'm understanding is like you could – be you could score low on an IQ test or be considered a slow learner. Uh-huh. But if you have these other attributes or some of them or a mixture of them, yes. um, you could 
you might not, might take you a little bit longer to get that point, but you could eventually get there if you stick to it. Is that? Kind yeah, of... there's no, there's no, God didn't put any uh, <laughs> limits uh, saying like, oh, that, you must have IQ above this number to be great in life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no commandments from above like that. Um, a lot of time we put our own, we self-impose limitations and, and our own perceived limitations are often incorrect. And I think that's what I, you know, that's just what I noticed in myself um, so clearly is just how many limiting notions I had about that I was being fed all these notions about how intelligent I was. And once I kind of tested those limits, I realized just how wrong they were. And I think, um, you know, more people need to be doing that with themselves. Very interesting stuff. Um, I think we're running out of time here, but I got, okay. I, I got one last question for you. You're asking me really great question. Well, well, I mean, it's just really, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, here, let me get to this question. Okay. Um, you talk about, you devoted a chapter to deliberate practice, right? You talk about it's one of those attributes you need to achieve mastery or greatness. Um, I think we've all, we've written about it. I think people are, are kind of pretty familiar with it now. This whole idea of like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's the 10,000 hour rule and you need it, whatever. Um, but you sort of take a nuanced view on it, a conception of it. I mean, can you explain where your ideas like differ from the typical idea of deliberate practice? Yeah, I don't think that I, I differ too much from from the traditional notions. Um, what why were you thinking I differ from the from you mean like Erickson's notion? It was just it seemed like it was a little more nuanced because like I think we you I think the popular idea of deliberate practice out there is like okay if you just devote ten thousand ten thousand hours to this or like okay, cool. then like you're gonna become a a golf pro, which so okay so there um are the 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 rule the ten thousand hour rule I I, I think is is we have to understand it's just an average. Okay. There are people that get there in two years and there are those that takes 20 years, right? We let's not, you know, let's get away from the, the rule idea. Um, the kind of practice you put into it, you know, that what's called what Anders Ericsson has called deliberate practice is, is a, a sort of quality of practice, which is clearly important, but it, that kind of practice interacts. I think, I believe it interacts with a lot of a wide range of other variables. Like your, levels of motivation, your, um, the extent to which you're um, at the appropriate challenging yourself so that you can enter that flow state, um, the um, environmental support, how much are, are people giving me the resources, how much are people, do you believe, like, do you feel as though you're in a supportive, um, belonging environment? Um, I, I see to practice as something that, you know, it, 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 the, the rate at which you, you go up that curve, the rate at which you learn things differs um from different people um and and what and the amount of time it takes you to get there you know differs greatly but it differs depending on a wide range of personal characteristics and environmental characteristics so i think we just need to be careful of just saying ten thousand hour rule because it really is it really is not a rule and there is no magic number to this and i think that when you get rid of the magic number idea it allows you to acknowledge there are prodigies and there are also late bloomers Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You know, the world has lots of different kinds of people and I'm okay with embracing that messiness and embracing that. Um, it's not messiness. It's just human diversity. And, um, and I'm okay with that, you know? Very good. Well, the, the 10,000 hour rule that sells books. I it mean, does. That, it's know? a simple, it's a simple idea. They're like, Oh wow. That's awesome. I want to, I can do that. <laughs> um, well, here's, I know, okay, as a dad, and I know there's a lot of dads or soon-to-be dads out there, their parents, and like a lot of modern dads, are they're much more involved in their kid's life. Yeah. 
Are there specific things that we can be doing with our kids to encourage these, these skills and attributes that are necessary to achieve greatness in their own way, whatever that is. Absolutely. At the end of the day, that's, that's where my whole research is going. That's what really I'm passionate about the most is how can we as, as teachers and parents bring out the best in our child? Cause I think it's all we can ask for at the end of the day. You know, we get tripped up with all these words and we're afraid, Oh, Johnny's not uh, progressing as fast as Jimmy down the street, yeah. you know? And if we just stop with the comparisons, stop with that whole um, paradigm of individual differences where we say, Oh, he, my child's not progressing as fast a rate as that child. Um, stay at a very local, um, stay at a very like um, needs based. What does my child need at this exact moment? Um, and there are things that you can do to bring out the best in that child to make them motivated. You can, um, I think we could, we should listen to their daydreams, listen to their own, um, where are their thoughts, what are they dreaming about, what are their, um, you know, that gives us clues to their passions and their proclivities. Um, I think we should instill in our children um, the value of hard work, um, instill in them the idea that that they will see results if they put in that work. That there is um, this sort of uh, uh, Carol Dweck calls it a growth mindset yeah. that there's value to um, learning from feedback and, um, and, um, and, and there's no state labeled failure, you know, don't ever say to your child, like you failed, you know, in this moment, you know, really try to instill in them this, this growth mindset, um, set up the conditions that allow them to play, set up the conditions that allow them to question authority. And I would say ultimately the thing I've learned the most about my whole, per- my whole life, um, is the importance of being your own self-advocate. And what I mean by being your own self-advocate is insulating yourself from the expectations of others, kind of creating the bubble around that mm. so that you are totally operating with your own internal compass. And um, that's probably the, the number one thing I see among those who do reach greatness is that they've done a really good job um, following their own internal compass um, and kind of ignoring that um, sort of that outside uh, expectations and influences. Very cool. Um, what about, what about guys who are like in their twenties or thirties, or I mean, even if they're fifties, like they, they feel like they haven't, they've sort of like missed out, right. They, they, they're they not yeah, on that path. To, I mean, can you turn things around? I guess is the question. I mean, are you, if you yeah, haven't man, started this I, now, are you doomed to a life of mediocrity? Is that, that's the oh, question. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. Like I, um, I did this profile, I did this piece on late bloomers for psychology today a couple of years ago. And I had the, the great privilege of interviewing um, a bunch of late bloomers in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who um, completely changed careers. And what I what struck me about that is that they were able to um, use that their age to their advantage. So it actually sometimes it is it's to your benefit to be a late bloomer. Mm. Because you can bypass all the games people play, all the bullshit, you know, all the, <laughs> the competition and everything amongst the younger people. You can just glide right over it all and get your own unique niche in, in the marketplace. I've seen that in this this guy who got on Broadway at age fifty, I think, um, and and you know he just served, you know all these kids that are vying for the same spots right outside of drama school at age like twenty two when they just graduate. He just walked right over that, right? Yeah. Um, or um, and you can see it in in lots of different fields. I would definitely not um, lose lose hope, and I would I would I would try to think strategically of ways of using it to your advantage. In fact, very cool. All right, well, Scott, this as always fascinating discussion. Uh, book gifted, completely great book. I, if you're a dad, go get it. Even if you're not a dad, 
highly recommend you'll get it. You'll get something. I got something out of it um, for my own life. So thanks again for taking the time to, to talk to us. Thank you, Brett. I really appreciate the work you do. Thank you. Our guest today was Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. Scott is the author of the book, Ungifted Intelligence Redefined, and you can find that on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this free podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take the time to give it a rating on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, be it iTunes or Stitcher. That would help us out a lot. And until next time, stay manly. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 